You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we come to you now because you draw us to yourself. Help us to see our need for your Son, Jesus Christ, and the answer to all our hopes and fears that we have in him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I started going to church in my 20s in San Francisco, California. I'd been seeking uh, answers to the meaning of life for gosh, almost a decade or so, and coming more and more to grips with Christianity, and I thought eventually I ought to go to church. Maybe there'll be some answers there. And uh, going to this sort of high-energy evangelical church in San Francisco, it was big, but it wasn't like a mega church, but, you know, 300 or so people there on a Sunday with a full rock and roll kind of band, and I was totally out of place. And of course, they, they, they recognized me as a, a newcomer, and the pastor and his wife, and, and one man in particular sought me out the, the first time I went. And by the way, the story I'm about to tell is a, a good example of why we need to greet uh, visitors, even introverts like me, uh, because this changed my life. Um, the, the, the man who wasn't the pastor who approached me and uh, got to know me after the service um, come to find that I wasn't a Christian, still still searching. And um, he said, well, would you like to go out to brunch after uh, church and, and talk? And I said, not this week. I lied that I had plans because I just didn't want to do that. Uh, and I said, maybe next week, maybe next week. And I, I, I did. I came back and we went out to brunch. Um, and the big question, the main conundrum that was holding me back then that I told him was, why did Jesus Christ have to die on the cross? I got a lot of things. I was even starting to, to, to understand sin, uh, but not the depths of it. And that was the question. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? And he opened up the Bible with me there at this uh, coffee shop where we had brunch to answer the question. And he had Eugene Peterson's The Message Bible, if you know what that is. I'd never seen anything like it because it spoke in a language that I could understand. And by the way, I don't entirely endorse The Message but hey, it worked for me then. Um, if you don't know the message, it's sort of a, a, a paraphrase of the Bible in sort of modernized language. And what he did to answer my question is take me down what's called the Romans Road of Salvation. Do you know what that is? It's a sort of memorized uh, presentation of the gospel using verses from the book of Romans. Of course, then I didn't realize that he had this presentation uh, in mind. He was trying to answer my question to to help me, first of all, understand the need uh, that uh, there is such a thing as sin and trying to answer that question of why did Jesus have to die on the cross. Let me read to you some of those verses that he would have read uh, starting in Romans chapter 3 from the message version of, of the Bible. And there we were at a table in a coffee shop looking over this one Bible together and he read this to me. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to all those uh, e- to to all those years has happened. The quote God setting things right that uh, we read about has become the Jesus setting things right for us, and not only for us but for everyone who believes in Him. For there is no difference between us and them in this. 
Since we have compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, both us and them, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, God did it for us. And then skipping ahead, these quotes from the Old Testament. There's nobody living right, not even one. Nobody who knows the score, nobody alert for God. They've all taken the wrong turn. They've all wandered down blind alleys. No one's living right. I can't find a single one. Their throats are gaping graves. Their tongues slick as mudslides. Every word they speak is tinged with poison. They open their mouths and pollute the air. They race for the honor of sinner of the year. Litter the land with heartbreak and ruin. Don't know the first thing about living with others. They never give God the time of day. Especially that last passage, I was amazed by the vivid language of things like throats that are gaping graves and tongues slick as mudslides and and racing for the honor to be sinner of the year, it both strangely resonated with me and at the same time I didn't like it. It made me squirm. At the same time it made sense to me and at the same time it didn't. And then after that, in response to one of my questions about, are we really that bad, I asked him. He went off the Romans road on a detour and, and read some Uh, verses from Romans chapter 7 to answer the question of, are we really that bad? And this is what we would have read. I can anticipate the response that is coming. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. It's this also, isn't this also your experience? Yes, I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide to do bad. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. This insight from Romans, especially in chapter 7, was uh, difficult for me to accept because it's at odds with what we're often uh, telling ourselves in society all the time, what we're often telling each other and what different messages in in the media or uh, just things that we say, we, we, we basically say things like that bad doesn't reside in us, that badness isn't in us, but the, the things and people of this world outside of us and that those things corrupt us. That's often kind of the message that you'll hear people say, at least subtly. And therefore, the thought is that we become bad or unhealthy because uh, we've been around the wrong people, uh, we've played the wrong video games, gone to the wrong schools, lived in the wrong neighborhoods, ate the wrong foods, and watched the wrong television shows, or whatever it is. We're so convinced by these ideas that we say things like, you become like the people you spend the most time with. You are what you eat. You have a choice in what you're made of. And don't get me wrong, there are some uh, practical truths to these statements. 
Um, but they're insidious half-truths. As Andrew said in his sermon last week, because he's perfected the art of lying, a lie is, has to be 70% true for it to be believable. And that's what's going on. You know, certainly when I eat certain foods, it, it makes me feel better or worse. And sometimes I'm affected by the, the, the people that I'm around. But Paul in Romans explains the real problem is already inside of us. That the real problem already dwells inside of each of us. And this is a major emphasis in our, our passage from Mark's gospel today. And by the way, we're beginning a, a new series uh, going through uh, Mark for a season. And it's helpful to know that Mark was a disciple of the apostle Peter. Mark was not uh, an eyewitness uh, to the events. He wasn't a disciple of Jesus. He was a disciple of Peter who was in the inner circle of Jesus. And so therefore, it is a reliable uh, uh, telling of the story of what happened in Jesus's life. But that's, that's an interesting point of trivia because you can see in Mark's gospel Peter's influence just look at our passage today in uh, verse 19 in the, Mark's uh, parentheses, his commentary, where he says, thus uh, he, Jesus, declared all foods clean. Compare that to uh, Peter's um, experience in Acts chapter 10. Remember where there's this flying uh, picnic blanket with non-kosher animals there. And a voice tells uh, Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And then Luke says in Acts, this happened three times to emphasize the point. The point that keeping kosher doesn't matter because the problem's not actually in the food. The problem's not actually in what we consume. The problem is in us, in our hearts. The problem is in the eater, not in the food that's eaten. And Jesus says something like this four times, four times in our passage, something to the effect of what comes out of a person defiles him, not what goes in. In verses 15, 20, 21, and 23, the fact that he repeats it four times, just as the voice of God repeated it three times to Peter and Acts, uh, must mean that this is a pretty important point that he wants to emphasize. Well, what's going on here? What's the, what's the background uh, to this occasion? Well, the Pharisees have come up from Jerusalem to entrap uh, Jesus, to find something uh, to point out, to accuse him for. And there they are, and they see Jesus' disciples not ritually washing before uh, they eat. And they're asking Jesus about his disciples not washing their hands before they're eating. They're asking about a, 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 a tradition that their predecessor Pharisees would have added to Moses' law. And this is the reason why Jesus calls these rules traditions of men and not of God. I mean, just think of the kosher food law of, um, that's based on not boiling a kid goat in its mother's milk. Have you heard that before in the Old Testament? Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. <clears throat> Straightforward enough. The interpretation of that has heaped more and more upon it that you know, it's not kosher to eat a cheeseburger because of milk and meat together. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not the original law. It's a misunderstanding of it and an extending of it. 
So they both misunderstand the prohibition and they increase its demands, extending the rules of of ritual cleansing at the temple to prescribe ritual hand washing and washing of utensils and furniture. But the more important point is that they misunderstand that the hands are not defiled. We are. It's not that the hands are dirty. We are deep down in a way that you can't even see. So Jesus goes on to explain at the very end of our passage, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Well, let's just consider pride from that list. Let me ask you a question and don't answer aloud. Just think about it in your heart. Who is one of the most prideful and hated people in the world right now? The answer is Elon Musk. If you don't know who Musk is, he is the founder of Tesla. You know, he made his fortune off of PayPal. He's the founder of the Tesla car company and uh, the SpaceX rocket program that NASA is uh, partnering with. And he's been in the news a lot lately because of his behavior, mostly on Twitter. Uh, August was a terrible month for him, starting with, remember back in July, there were the, the, in Thailand, the, the kids trapped in the cave and the guys dove down there to rescue them. Uh, Musk said on Twitter he accused one of the, the divers of being a pedophile and ensued this sort of libel war, or not libel, whatever it is that you say. And uh, recently he announced that he would um, make Tesla a private company, going from public to private. Um, and his, he later sort of reversed this claim, and his board is talking about replacing him as CEO. This is all happening in the last month. Uh, and he's basically saying there's nobody who can do a better job than him at running his companies. But, but here's the thing. We're all basically like Elon Musk. Some of us are, are, are even worse. The, the problem is that he has more Twitter followers and a lot more money. So he gets more attention when he does things like this. Well, maybe unlike Musk, though, uh, your problem isn't pride. What on the list is? Let me just read it again. What resonates most with you? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Maybe something on this list resonates with you, not because it's something that you actually perform in an outward sense, but because you you feel it deep down in your heart. Well, where's the good news? If this message about people and how bad all people are, including you and me, if this message is, is really true, where's the good news? And don't get me wrong, I I still uh, believe in and convicted by the fact that we're all made in the image of God. At creation, God certainly uh, declared us good at first, but something has gone terribly wrong. And we have a disease that affects every part of us, especially our hearts. Yet, even early on in the Old Testament, we saw promises of hope for us sinners. Consider just these words from Deuteronomy. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then later with the prophets, hear from Ezekiel chapter 36, I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And of course, finally with Jesus, we have ultimate hope fulfilled. Mark's passage today reveals to us why Jesus had to come into the world. It's not enough to obey the law outwardly, even perfectly. Our problem is, is, is deeper than right or wrong behavior. Thankfully, though, Jesus has an undefiled heart, unlike us, and he gives it to us. My path uh, down the Romans road with that man back in San Francisco on our detour would have ended with these words at the end of chapter 7 and the very beginning of chapter 8. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that faithful dilemma, that fateful dilemma is resolved. This was the answer to my original question of why did Jesus Christ have to die on the cross? So here's my take-home message for you to, to look to Jesus No matter uh, how undeserving you might feel of God's grace, look to Jesus. And on the flip side of that, no matter how well you think you're doing in this life, you still need to look to Jesus. If you're avoiding consuming all the bad things, and if you're behaving in all the right ways, you still ultimately fail if you're doing it for all the right reasons, wrong reasons, excuse me. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ means to accept this reality of our weakness and our need. There are certainly good things that we can do in this life, and there are bad things we should avoid, to be sure. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But this is best accomplished by a natural byproduct of the gospel of grace. The grace of God given to you because of what Jesus Christ accomplished for you on his cross. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.